Hello, happy equinox to you. I hope you're well. Um, the sky is blue, the sun is out, and the air has a slight nip in it uh, down here in Brighton today. Kind of telling of spring and oh, it's just lovely. Um, so I hope you have a lovely equinox. I hope you had a good full moon the other day. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce my first conversation of series four. But before I do that, as promised in my last episode, I wanted to give you this week's pointer. So as I said, I'd be giving you like a suggestion, something you can do to help take action. And this week it's the Stop Cambo campaign. So I'll not say too much about it. Um, it's essentially uh, the coming together of a number of grassroots groups, campaign groups to push back against the increase in gas and oil extraction. Um, it began as a campaign to stop the Cambo oil field in the North Sea from being developed. Um, they were successful in this campaign, uh, although the story's not over, and now they're looking at really trying to push for the green revolution we've all been promised, the, the move towards uh, green energy, renewable energy. Um, it's a really inspiring campaign. I first heard about it um, through the Parents for Future group, which I'm a part of. One of the members of that is a founding member of the Stop Cambo campaign. You can find more about what they do, including petitions to sign, letters to write, that sort of thing, how you can take action by going to their website, which is www.stopcambo, that's S-T-O-P-C-A-M-B-O, .org.uk or you can follow them on at stopcambo on twitter instagram and facebook it's the same handle across all platforms so on to today's episode in which i speak with the absolutely wonderful uh, rebecca schiller she's a writer uh, from kent i'll not say too much about her because i'll let her introduce herself but i will say that she wrote uh, an amazing book which came out last year uh, called Earthed. The paperback is now out, um, published by Elliot and Thompson. And she also has the US version of that book, which is called A Thousand Ways to Pay Attention, also out now. And I'll suggest what I always suggest when it comes to buying books, which is to buy from your local independent bookseller and then pop over to Amazon and write a glowing review of the book because that's what really helps uh, support writers uh, and bookshops. This really was an enriching conversation. We talked about so much in the hour that we spoke. And just to kind of give you an idea of what we talked about, uh, we visited things like how she came to small holding, her first memories of nature, the importance of giving children access to the natural world, finding the balance in working in and with nature, the impact that her ADHD diagnosis and the pandemic had on her writing process, nature writing as nuanced conversation, writing by your seasons, and that really is just a glimmer of what we spoke about. This was such a lovely conversation and I really hope you enjoy it too. Remember to rate and review the podcast if you like this or any of the other episodes and follow me over on Instagram at prompted.by.nature where I post uh, nature inspired writing prompts kind of twice a week generally and I'm going to I'm planning some write alongs coming up quite soon. And if you like what I do and you would like to buy me a coffee, you can visit my page www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash prompted by nature. I really hope you enjoy the conversation. I wasn't ill when I did the conversation as I am now, as you can maybe tell from my voice. 
Um, and remember that the writing prompt for this episode will be out on Tuesday. I hope you enjoy that too. Enjoy the conversation and I will speak to you soon. Bye. Um, so I'm Rebecca Schiller and I'm an author um, of um, several books, including um, a memoir called Earthed. Uh, I'm also sometimes a journalist, um, quite often a smallholder, sometimes wrangling children, goats, <laughs> carrots. Uh, and um, I have done lots of things in the past from founding a, a human rights charity to being a doula. Uh, so clearly I still don't know what it is I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> A lot. Um, so I would love to know what was it that kind of initially took you to a small holding? What was it that led you to, because I know you, you talk about it in the book, but I would love to talk a bit about just how that happened. Because I think for a lot of people that have any kind of sense of uh, connection with nature, irrespective of background, I think it can almost be like the dream is to own a bit of land and, and that sort of thing. How did, how did that kind of come into being for you? Is it something you always wanted to do or did it just happen? I think there's a few different stories depending on um, how honest I'm being. <laughs> um, it's not something that was like a treasured dream from childhood. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, through my childhood, I gravitated towards nature and being outside um I spent a lot of time uh I was really into ponies and I spent a lot of time working my weekends on a fairly rough and ready um yard in the in the black country riding ponies bareback over the fields and um loved being in the mountains and in Wales but you know like lots of people um got very busy with working and a career, lived in London, and I didn't realise that I was missing that as a regular part of my life. I didn't, I didn't really think about it very much. And then in 2016, um, which was a pretty big year in lots mm. of people's lives, um, a few things happened. Um, everything felt very strange in the world, I think at that at that moment we were living in Ramsgate, where um, Nigel Farage was actually campaigning in our in our very he he was campaigning in our constituency, um, and we spent. I had a commission as a as a journalist to spend uh, the summer reviewing some particular sort of family holiday destinations. So we happened to just be away for about six weeks, mainly living in tents and shacks and outside, and. Um, it suddenly seemed like a sort of answer <laughs> to what I hadn't realised was a question about how happy we were, what were we doing with our lives, was the world was feeling very volatile. Um, and I'm quite an impulsive, let's do something kind of person. And all of these things added up into my head to, we should move to the countryside. <laughs> um, and because I am that kind of person, we, that was in the summer of 2016 and by early 2017 we bought the only place we could afford mm. um, in the whole of the southeast uh, a sort of bungalow um, with just under two acres of um, land uh, and we sort of landed there with uh, 
some very naive ideas about about what we would do um and yeah have been there ever since mm. and it sounds uh, oh I was going to say it sounds idyllic I'm not sure it does just for <laughs> you've read the book yeah it sounds like a lot of hard work um but I guess rewarding in so many ways um but before because I do want to talk specifically about about the book but before we get to that you kind of um alluded to you kind of your your memories of nature growing up are there any kind of specific memories that stand out that you maybe draw back on and that or just kind of comes to mind of of growing up with nature and how it's how that's maybe led to it impacting on where you are now or or just what you've done in on your path yes I mean I've I've been reflecting on that a lot recently um partly because I've been having some fairly intensive therapy that's Mm -hmm. that's uh necessitated thinking about those sort of foundational things and actually I found that what I am drawn back to in terms of um creating uh, a sort of internal place of safety and comfort are those memories of, of nature so there's a particular mountainside in North Wales where we went every year as as children um and I remember very clearly, I'd always, I'd always have a book. I was a, like a sort of one of those addictive readers. Um, and I'd go off, there was a the cottage we used to stay and there was a, a sort of little hillside in front of it from which you could see the mountains to one side and the sea to the other. And there was a kind of little ledge that I could get myself into where I'd be out of the wind. And there's a really sort of evocative smell of like gorse and bracken and sheep wee. <laughs> of course. Um, slate and and that kind of um moss you get and and in very um sort of uh hillsides you know blasted hillside areas that um and I would sit there I could sit there for hours and read and feel like I was the only person in the world um so I think that's one and the, the other is is about being with animals outside and I realized a lot how what a protective factor that was for me, particularly as a, you know, an older child and a teenager with some of the things that I found actually now I realise pretty stressful about school and, um, you know, getting into a sort of more um, adult um, way of life that actually spending time with animals really super regulating for me. So I had, first of all, I had loads of bunnies and um, <laughs> spent a lot of time with horses. And if I didn't have an animal on the go, I would find a way to adopt one or get to <laughs> find a stray. And, um, and so something about being in that outdoor environment, whether it's with an animal of my own or observing, um, mm-hmm. you know, looking at, the buzzards flying overhead or something is is I'm just primed to do that and I, I really sort of crave it mm. and how have you seen that I was just thinking about because you've got a couple of children as well haven't you um are they do you see that in them as well with because I know you've got your goats and I was watching along when one of them was having the the um, yeah, yeah yes um, yeah. a while ago that was very sweet how yeah. have you seen that kind of or have you seen that in, in your children? How have they sort of um, responded to having these kind of, I guess, wilder in, in, in inverted yeah. animals and growing up around them? It's interesting. I mean, they're both have been presented with this as it being 
pretty normal mm. um see my daughter was older when we moved here about seven so she's she, but we always had cats um so she's always had animals in her life my son who's eight now um he doesn't really remember the, the bit of life that he remembers is here with mm. at least some chickens and some mm. you know ducks hatching out um uh he is actually probably of the two the least interested um <laughs> uh, he, it's not that he's disinterested though he really he it's a part of his life that I'm sure he would miss mm -hmm. um he doesn't love doing jobs but if he's reminded how much he enjoys hanging out with his goats and brushing them then he absolutely does that um my daughter is just like me mm. and she needs animals in a in a way that um I think you know my son doesn't saying that though I'm remembering that my son takes his cat to bed every night like a teddy bear so, <laughs> so I think there's a sort of um I think if you're used to that yeah and it's not and, and there's no you know and you've had good experiences um then it's going to be something that's an important part of your life but like we we've humans have lived with animals for a long time mm. um but I, I definitely noticed that she is more drawn to it than than he is and they're, they're both pretty I mean they know they can handle themselves mm -hmm. they can my son can go out and make up the very different feeds that the different goats and little ponies need and he they both know how to muck out and my daughter can look after all the animals by herself if needed um so that I really like I like that they have skills actually mm. and that and that they feel confident about how to communicate with a creature that you can't talk to mm. and that you have to be more in tune with yourself um in order to communicate effectively with them um, mm. I, I think that that feels like a a nice thing to have given them the opportunity to know how to do Mm, I was I was literally in when you said to have given them I was thinking you know that's a real gift mm. and then you said to because that feels like it, it's almost like that should be just a right that we just have access to you know like through education or whatever and I know schools are doing a lot more now to you know encourage connection with the natural world and mm. stuff but that feels especially with this sort of uncertain future we're all going into to have those that knowledge of how the land works and how you know like you say you can't communicate with these things by speaking but you can communicate by listening and then yes. responding I mean that when you were asking about you know the motivations for moving here when I was having this sort of um real wrestling with what is happening to the world mm. and feeling like the systems and structures that had seemed almost invisible because they were so solid were in fact not solid at all mm. and that they would unravel very quickly one of the things that I was sort of struck by was that I didn't have that many like I couldn't I couldn't survive for a minute anywhere you know I, I'd rely on my and I'm someone that that you know hadn't I, I did grow up with access to the mm. to the outdoors and um been incre incredibly privileged to have been enabled to do that and yet still mm. I didn't know how to mend things I couldn't tell which was a poisonous weed and which was a seedling coming up and it wasn't that I have any belief that if I you know learned 
to sow carrots and keep chickens I could survive some kind of <laughs> you know terrible apocalypse yeah but there was a feeling that this was something missing mm-hmm. and that it was it, it suddenly seemed stupid not to create a situation in which not only we could learn that but the kids could learn it as well mm. especially if as we did and do we wanted to be a bit more conscious about how much we were trampling on the world um and I know that I'm someone that doesn't I need you know I need to be really doing something in order to do it mm-hmm. um and it I it's something I've really wrestled with like why did I have to move to a small hole why didn't I just like you know I could have dug a bed in the bottom of my garden we could have got a couple of hens there and but actually I wouldn't have done it then mm. I wouldn't have done it I uh and I needed it to be like this um and that's not necessarily a good thing <laughs> it's a true thing <laughs> yeah yeah and I think like you say if you know the circumstances need to be such that you have to do it in order to do it then I think yeah. that's 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 never going to be a bad thing because at least you're doing it you know like yeah. um there's there are so many things that we can all be doing and I think it's just about yeah just okay these are the circumstances this is what I need to happen in order to feel kind of um maybe not motivated that's the wrong way but I was going to say like useful even (laughs) you know like setting up those be having those tools I guess the land the tool is a land yes the land is a tool for for that kind of for that kind of work and and also I think what I love is is especially about you know the way that you speak about the small holding is there is such a sense of giving you know reciprocate reciprocation you know you're giving it's giving you're giving back and I think the more people that have land are doing that because you know farmers are getting better at doing that but there are still you know you see big swathes of land that's just being taken from then there's nothing left in the earth I think the more people that can earn or own land that are creating this this cycle this like spiral if you like rather than this linear use 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 deplete move on I think that's that's all to the good really you know it's yeah I I think it's it's something that's been a real shift for me in the time we've been here um you know when we moved here I don't really think I understood even why I'd wanted to be here and what I wanted to get 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 from it and then realizing that oh doing this stuff has a benefit for me it turns out that I wasn't I was already sliding into not a very good place mentally and I need the um physical activity and I need the calm and I need the connection with nature and I can use this as a therapeutic tool and we can use this to take food from and Mm -hmm. and then realizing that that was not how this worked at all like if anyone was supposed to be giving stuff, it was me. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> in all, you know, in order to get out of that very, you know, capitalist mindset of mm-hmm. here's the thing, I must plunder it, <laughs> even if it's for connection reasons, even if it's for a mental health reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, not seeing this as this is 
this is my thing to get something from, but I'm coming into a kind of relationship and realizing that I have to take care of mm. and give back. And that there are lots of very, you know, there are lots of very um, researched and, 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 and obvious personal benefits, but also it's quite complicated. It's quite difficult. You know, my work on the plot has not always been positive for me. Thinking about this stuff, thinking about the hypocrisy, it's, it's been quite difficult. Mm. And moving to that place of thinking about this as being, I've got a responsibility as well as a right, mm-hmm. which is, is something that some of the research I did around the book, looking at how other peoples, other societies who have had a, a, a less plundery relationship with the world is based on there being rights, but responsibilities as well. Mm-hmm. And, and, and having a responsibility for a piece of land at the, this moment in time is actually quite uh, challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, yeah, it's, it's complicated. And I think that's one of the things I, I've wanted to do when I've been talking about it is not to present it as a solution, a dream. Or if you guys, if you just give it all up and move to the countryside, which is obviously yeah. very easy for everyone, then um, go outside, you know, stroke a hen, you'll feel better. Um, that Though I wouldn't do anything differently. Mm-hmm. It is like everything so much more complicated than that. And by ignoring the complexity, I think we, you know, eventually end up making things worse for ourselves and and, Mm. the world Mm. and was it that that gave rise to the book because I'd love to kind of um zone in on the book a bit now because you talk a lot about that in unearthed and was it um sorry earthed I've just called it unearthed sorry about well there is a brilliant book that I think is just has just come out it's just about to come out by um Claire Rattanon which is unearthed which is um her memoir so um, everyone should also buy a book (laughs) called unearthed um (laughs) this one is earthed (laughs) so um so what was it how did how did the book itself come about how did you when did you get to the point that you thought I want to put this all down and create a piece of work from it um a bit like moving to the plot itself it was a little bit of a impulse idea I am a writer I'd written some books have an agent there comes a time when it's like what are you going to work on next (laughs) (laughs) and um so turning the things that you care about and are interested in into a book is just a, a logical thing when we I was thinking about writing about it it was going to be a very different book the idea that we pitched was 12 months Mm -hmm. 12 months in one woman's English country garden looking very much at you know documenting the seasons documenting the work on the plot and using that to talk about my sort of mental health and yeah the complexity of how it had both helped that and also been problematic Mm. um I was really fortunate that the publisher who took it on um and the editor who took it on Sarah Rigby at Elliot and Thompson she says now she's like oh I knew you weren't going to write that book (laughs) (laughs) I just knew there was a good book there and that you could write it and she really encouraged me to take lots of risks and explore whatever I wanted to and I got the commission 
sort of sold the book at, at the end of 2019 in the autumn mm -hmm. with the idea that I would write it in the first six months of 2020 about the previous year and by the time I sat down to write it my, everything had changed I'd um, realized that I probably had a, a, a neurodiversity and I've been through a diagnostic process and I've been diagnosed with ADHD um, which was now a huge thing that informed everything about my life and my decisions there. And we also slid pretty quickly after that into the pandemic. And I think those two things meant that I had to change the timeframe of the book, had to include 2020. I was actually writing it as it happened. You know, mm -hmm. the book covers up until summer 2020. I finished the first draft in summer 2020. <laughs> so it really, you know, it was written yeah. very quickly about things that were happening then and I I think partly because the world was absolutely bonkers when I was writing it and because I had a supportive editor I was then able to do things differently so I there's you know there's some fiction in there I ended up researching quite a lot about the women who worked on and lived on or around the the, the plot um, and fictionalizing their lives a bit and going much broader geographically and writing uh, actually much more creatively about um, lots of things and um, and so it it changed the book changed because my life changed um, and um, I I had no idea that it would be <laughs> the book that it was um, and I think it it's been really interesting and quite unusual to be allowed to do something that was really led by what was happening mm. and, and very kind of responsive and and, and sort of immediate um, even if it presented some challenges in terms of uh, <laughs> actually writing it in quite an in, and researching it in such an a, you know intense period of time mm. and I have to say I think the the stories that come out of your connection to the land that you're on. I, I just thought that was such a, um, it felt, it, it created this richness in the book. Not that you, you speaking about your experiences of the land and your experiences with ADHD and that kind of thing wouldn't have been enough. There was just something about bringing those stories in, which made it so, it just felt very, so natural in a sense of like it needed to be those stories needed to be there yeah. and 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 I feel like as you're speaking I was just thinking it was almost like not that the pandemic had to happen but in terms of where the book where it led you in the book it just feels like maybe that maybe that wouldn't have happened if the pandemic hadn't happened or maybe maybe it would have done I don't know but it, there's just so it feels like yeah, it just brings such a richness to the book, which I felt I felt was so unique to it, actually. Thank you. I mean, it was, there was part of it, and I, I listened to an interview with a, another author talking about why they'd made a particular decision. And I always find it really fascinating when there's quite a practical problem that prompts something quite creative. And so one of the things that prompted that was that I really wanted to write, I'm, 
you know, I go down research mm-hmm. wormholes and rabbit holes and the way that my brain works is to look for connections and patterns and believe they're there and find them. And as I learned about my ADHD and I began to understand the way my brain worked, it felt very important to include that in the book. But in a sort of early draft of some of the chapters, I was sort of telling my story and then I was sort of saying, as I would in a more journalistic way, I um, then looked up this report and I read this report and did you know that, you know, 6,000 people did this and 40% of, I just didn't work going from that tone to the other. And so I was dealing with this specific report into small holding that I wanted to talk about. And then I just thought, how about if I just imagine the person who wrote the report? And so I came up with the idea of the civil servant working on the report and her life. And so that's threaded through the book. Um, uh, she's, I guess, like a subplot. And so the facts are in there. Um, and the initial idea was simply to deal with a problem in a shift of tone. Mm-hmm. But then having that as an idea gave me permission to then do something that I already do. Mm-hmm. coloring in the details you know um and actually to feel quite political about it particularly with the women of the of the land that they had they had been erased mm-hmm. they were not they were so lightly marked on history if at all but I knew they were there and having felt like a lot of my a lot of how I wanted to be and interact with the world had been quite erased and that I've been trying to fit into this very neurotypical way of thinking and doing things and that had been pretty damaging for me I wanted to sort of breathe life back into these women and actually I've been I've been working on a you know that's super unusual project rewritten earthed for an American publisher Mm -hmm. it's not an American version it is the same story but a different book so it's probably at least half new material it's written in a different way the timeline is different um it's called a thousand ways to pay attention and it has a lot more stories Mm. of women they're a lot more embedded in the book there are more of them um and um it's been so amazing to do that had to be a year later to have time to go back and think oh now I know from the beginning that that's something I want to do um and to find a way to link my little bit of Kent with America and discover that there were links and Mm -hmm. that there were people who'd picked themselves up off this bit of Kent in Mm the 17th century and gone to Massachusetts um and um to find ways to look for those women and and to make those connections and and that's been a really it's been a really magical thing to Mm. do actually and the way that all of that you know all of these stories kind of link you back uh to kind of yourself I was wondering if I could just read a bit that kind of jumped out at me sure um I'm gonna butcher some of the navigation. <laughs> so, I, I, I just recommend if you ever write a book and you might have to record the audio book of it, never include a lot of words yeah. from languages that are no longer spoken or only spoken by about <laughs> 10 yeah. people. Is that but that creates some challenges? Yeah, um so uh yeah, it's just it's just a paragraph, although I say it's just a paragraph, you know, <laughs> paragraphs can be varying in length. Um, So I snap back to this. So this is in November, autumn, winter, 2019, November. 
I snapped back to this not yet meadow, my hoary hoary and the bulbs that I didn't mean to buy. I cannot see through the eyes of the women of the Sowateneuk, I think. Sowateneuk. Okay, thank you. First Nation people, and I definitely can't slide into them as I have with others. Still surrounded by the sounds of the river, the breeze blowing through the meadow and the smell of the Mutasti? Uh, I think it's M-U-T-A-Mutaxi, I think. Roasting in the fire. My senses were pulled towards a vision of who I want to be, who I wish I could be, a guardian, a custodian of the land. I want to understand the reality of other peoples and not simplistic reductive versions full of caricatures either, but I can't do it by pretending to be something I'm not or denying the past. I am the bad guy in this story, the white woman putting up the fence, breaking something powerful I didn't even try to understand. My part in the Kamesia's tale is brutality a place of myself and my family between the harvest and those who ensured it was there for me to take. There will be many stories that are not mine to live or to tell and learning to recognize that might be the first step. I just think there's so much, there's so much depth in that and there's so much thought, like, because it's so easy to just say, oh, I'm just gonna tell this story and you know, not really think about my own perspective and where I stand in the, you know, in the body I was born in I suppose in the location I was born in and I love that you you come back to that quite a lot um you know that I can only tell this story through my own eyes and I have to recognize where my eyes are and what they've seen and those experiences um yeah I just I just I just loved that that because it reminded me as well to always just to keep it's like yes that's I can really identify with that and the kind of nuances around that. Yeah, I I think it was it was really different when my kind of wormholes led me to to um, looking at um, a number of um, stories that actually were quite often in in North America, but around around the world about First Nations peoples or peoples who were. Um, stolen um, during um, the slave trade. It was really hard to know what to do about that, feeling like these weren't my stories, but there was a, I could, I knew now I could see where they fitted in Mm -hmm. and omitting them felt like cowardice. Mm. Um, And at the same time with the, the thread about neurodivergence and the way that I had been diagnosed with various things and and I'd had quite a lot of um, sense here and I I, I talk about some therapy that I had during it, you know, for being overthinking and over controlling and, you know, basically if I could just learn that a lot of this stuff didn't matter and I didn't need to worry about it, I'd be fine. And I think I was very angry about, I am very angry about that because it's like, that is the way my brain works. I see these things. And the end result of me seeing those things is often something that people really like. Oh, you've put all these things together and you've done something unusual. That's, you know, or you've, this is not me, but other, other neurodivergent, you've been able to invent something that no one else thought of. But also we like the end result, but could you just not do this process in which you think about all of these things? <laughs> Um, and worry about them and consider them and think they're important well no because that is the process that leads to the thing I'm sorry if it's inconvenient Mm. uh, that I'm not taking 
sensible measured steps with blinkers on towards a defined goal uh and when I get there you know I'll choose another goal and afford it that's not how I work that's why you get this stuff Mm -hmm. it's quite hard to do that and to have all of this stuff so I wanted I wanted to put that in but also be like be be respectful and honest about interacting with stories in which my ancestors people who look like me I am still benefiting from Mm. something absolutely horrific that Mm. was that was done um and I don't feel like that could be dealt with in a sentence in the acknowledgements Mm. and it's something that genuinely I you know I it's one of the many the many things that runs through my head so it it sort of had to go in Mm. Mm. and how did you feel once you'd once you'd finished the book and I ha- how did that tired. <laughs> <laughs> really tired because it, it does feel like a journey because you know of your own personal journey the journey of the land the journey of the stories that you're telling I wonder how that felt other than being tired um <laughs> it and then see the finished article and I think um I am very proud of it. Um, I early on in the process of deciding to write it, having written other books before, I decided that I was going to set like a personal criteria for what would feel like success. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be about how many copies it sold or whether it got reviewed in a certain way or um, if it won an award. And to be clear, I'd be really happy it to be nominated for awards sell loads of copies and get really good reviews <laughs> but the the thing that was going to tell me if it was success was if I felt like it was a good piece of work mm. and I really did and I really do um and that's it feels quite a radical <laughs> felt like yeah. quite a radical thing to do for me and quite a challenge to, it was actually quite, a, I realised it was quite a tough standard to me, something that I would think was a good piece of work. Um, but I did, I did meet that. And, and that even though I might have done it differently in certain circumstances, and, and I have weirdly had the opportunity to do it differently. Yeah. Um, it, there is nothing about that that devalues Earth. I, I feel like I did something for myself quite extraordinary at the time mm-hmm. and I had really extraordinary support from the publishers so the other thing was that even though the process of writing it it was really difficult to write it was quite painful everything was very present it was the pandemic I had my kids underfoot everything was really stressful all of the things that I'd planned to make enough money to exist so that I could write the book disappeared it was a really challenging time to do anything Mm. but the professional relationship the creative relationship was the most fulfilling I've ever had really being seen and heard and valued and cared for by you know by the publisher um at every stage you know they enabled me to choose the color of the pages on the inside and the little head and tail bands that you don't notice but if you look on the spine of a hardback there's a little band at the bottom like a a yellow band I chose that color (laughs) you know um and and quite often authors are presented with the cover without any involvement or and so 
to be enabled to be so personally attentive to something that was so personal and to, mm. was, was really really important and the thing that's been incredible has been getting messages from people who have read it and have felt seen and heard and felt some kind of reciprocity people who've read it and realized that they might have ADHD or be neurodivergent too and have gone on to seek and get help and a diagnosis with that you know lot, lots of people that that it turns out is I think better than anything mm. else in terms of feeling like I did something worthwhile with my time and energy and I made something I find it still quite hard to believe it's an actual product even though I've got loads of them in my house um because the experience of writing a book is so different from something you can hold in your hand I think talking to a lot of authors there's often quite a disconnection between what you think of as the book and an actual book mm. um because it's my life and there's a period of time and I've got like you know an object that could fit in a bag it, it's quite difficult to reconcile them but um yeah I love it and I'm really proud of it um it makes me feel quite emotional <laughs> it's something it's something out of nothing isn't it I mean like a pregnant nothing you know yeah nothing. it's nothing and everything yes absolutely yeah. yeah almost like it was already there it just yeah it's about I always think that about writing and, and creativity in general is it's like everything's you know whether you're a painter or a writer or whatever it is sculptor it's like all of these different aspects all of the words if you're a writer they're all they're all there you just need to put them in an order and make them physical you know everything's yes. like it's like you're they, they hang above you and you just it's just about drawing them down yeah. you know that that's a really I really like that way of looking at it that they're hanging above you you know it's plums on the on yes. the plum tree yeah. um I was talking to another writer about like our I think we have quite similar processes of a lot of research uh, in in every direction and I realized for me it's a process of gathering mm -hmm. can gather a lot of stuff and um and then it's all there and at some point it sort of starts to form something cohesive um some of it you know rolls off the table and some of it you know becomes more or less important but the gathering of things and the being able to see how they might fit together mm. that feels like where the where the work and the the skill maybe the skill that can be honed is Mm. it's almost like a chef just with loads of ingredients and then they decide what they're going to make and they gradually start taking away ingredients that they yeah. don't need and yeah doing yeah. different things to the apples and different things yeah whatever it might be which should mean I'm good at cooking but I'm really not <laughs> well, <laughs> you, know. you can't burn you can't burn chapters <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's you can always go back and you know make them yeah yeah make them less rubbish That's, whereas yeah. once, once you've burned you know once you've burnt the sauce yeah it's gone <laughs> there's nothing doing that can't be undone I yeah think. yeah absolutely um, so I wanted to ask um kind of you know kind of what we were speaking about when we first started speaking about um not just your creative process but 
whether you ever have t- periods where you just find it difficult because I, I was saying to you you know I've I've had sort of 10 months or so of just finding it really difficult to put pen to paper and when I do it's all I just feel like it's just bleh, it, you know it just it's immediately deleted or scribbled out or torn out or whatever do you ever have periods like that or do you um, and and if so how do you get yourself out of that kind of funk or do you find that it's just kind of quite stable now or um, how does it work for you? I think I'm hopefully coming into a place of understanding a bit more how my sort of rhythms work and being more, not just understanding it in terms of knowledge, but being more understanding mm-hmm. <laughs> and compassionate and seeing the value in it. But it's still quite complex for me. I think I have naturally, and there's lots of, reasons for it um, some of them tied to you know having a a a brain that that works in a particular way I tend to need a real impetus to do something Mm -hmm. and once I've got the impetus then I need to just only do that thing (laughs) (laughs) so um it's quite hard for me to just do writing like oh I'm just gonna I've got a writing practice and I just write every day even if I haven't got a particular project on the go or if I've got this idea that I'm not sure about and mm-hmm. I haven't got a publisher it's actually really hard for me to do it um and I previously would have thought oh I that's because I'm you know I'm, I'm rubbish basically you know that, yeah. that's a rubbish thing I should be able to do it like this and also I I go through periods of working very 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 hard often on lots of different things and then feeling like and this is the way I would have thought about it before like I overwork and overdo things and then I'm really burnt out and I have to I like fall off the face of the earth and I do nothing mm-hmm. and that's really unbalanced and I need to find a way to have a more sort of con- consistent like do less because overworking is bad but also doing nothing is bad mm-hmm. and I think some of the reading I've been doing recently um understanding a bit more about a more critical approach to thinking about how we how the world has treated neurodivergent people is that actually maybe that is just my rhythm Mm. it's not that I'm overworking it's that I have periods in which I'm full of energy and ideas and the ideas spark other ideas and Mm. I have a sort of spring and summer season Mm. um, which quite often is in the spring and summer (laughs) Um, uh, and then after that that has taken everything Mm. and I have to step back I have to pause and do nothing and that's not because I've necessarily broken myself it's because that's the natural and and that sometimes in that period of stepping back from the world that's when things start to generate again and things bubble away inside and I can do processing and um and with there are of course ways of of, that I can change elements of that to to make it more less extreme Mm -hmm. but actually seeing that it's pretty okay and in some ways quite sensible to follow your own it might be seasonal cyclical patterns um and that just because it doesn't fit in with sort of a big business approach to the world um which needs us all to be nice and consistent so they can sell us things um that that it's fine Mm. to have those periods and if you if you can make your life like that so my the 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 difficulty I have and it's at the moment is getting back in to reading and writing Mm -hmm. and so um I've been 
set up a community for writers who happen to be um, mothers, um, as well as trans and non-binary um, parents. And the idea is to provide some mutual support. And one of the things that I'm really finding helpful in that is some accountability, because mm. I want to get back into that. And so I've got a reason why I need to be like, oh, did set an intention that I was going to write 700 words this week. <laughs> and um, that it helps me to have that community actually um, in order to tip myself back into the spring season and like come out of hibernation, you know, um, uh, uh, and I ne often need to read a couple of books to get my reading spirit back. And um, so, yeah, finding some ways to have a sort of, because um, I'm not a crocus. <laughs> I do need something I guess the crocus needs a bit of sun a bit slight warmth yeah. and a bit of sun I need I, maybe I am a crocus uh, <laughs> I just have to find my equivalent <laughs> yeah. yeah I I think yeah I think community is can be such a big part of it I, I know for myself I often forget about community because mm. I, I focus too much on oh I I should be able to do this by myself I shouldn't need help I shouldn't need anyone to you know give me the in incentive but I know that I'm, I feel the same that actually when you do have something that you're creating for or someone or some people that you're creating for or with that can make such a huge difference yeah um so I'm just I'm conscious of time so I've got a couple more questions that I wanted to ask if that's okay so um the first one is on your journey on your path wherever it finds you now. Um, what have you learned that you would like to pass on? Quite big. <laughs> <laughs> well, just keeping it small, small yeah. questions. Yeah. Um, I suppose one of the things that I have always struggled with is this idea of like self-care and kindness and compassion like I rationally know all about that but really what it feels like and what it looks like and and just discovering a way in which for me I'm beginning to be able to do that and it's about when something isn't working like mm -hmm. when I feel like like when you just said um I should I don't focus enough on community. I think too much about myself and I should be doing everything. And so I'm trying in those situations where something's off mm. to think, okay, so I think this, I think I'm wrong. Mm. Like I, like, is there any chance that in fact, there are elements of this situation that I've been put in? So is, is it, for example, like we've been really discouraged and actually often pulled out of community structures mm. and encouraged to take individual responsibility to everything, particularly in a political system that would like everything to not be yeah. <laughs> fault. Uh, and so is it any wonder that that's my default? Mm -hmm. And I find it hard to do this thing. And somehow for me, that feels like a version of like kindness and self-care that I can do. It doesn't feel too sort of ephemeral and fluffy. And yeah. I am a bit of an activist. Yeah. So if I can think of it like that, make myself feel a little bit cross about it. Mm. And then I can think, okay, so what do I want? 
like what do I actually want which is and how could I can I do anything about that or is this out of my control and what could I do then that feels like being kind to myself and is helping me with the various sticks I have to beat myself Mm. uh you know those those sticks together there are you know less of them and they're not quite so pointy and just flipping the way I think about it and I would like to say very clearly that I'm not brilliant at that at the Mm. moment but I am trying really hard uh it's always a work in progress isn't it yeah (laughs) I, I love that about like you know if you feel angry enough about something then you'll do it like you know like that's motivated I feel exactly the same you know like okay something has prevented me from doing this external to me yeah so I'm gonna I'll show them you know yeah (laughs) yeah I mean I feel like maybe if my therapist is listening we're gonna have to have a conversation now about (laughs) something else but I, I do think also just like that being aware that there's not necessarily a right way mm. to like move myself through the world mm-hmm. and this is one other thing actually which I think is the most useful thing it's from a, a writer Dr Sharon Blackie oh I love her and there's a thing she says in I think it's if women rose rooted about how she'd been looking for balance like buying this work-life balance um you know balance in nature and she realized that there wasn't such a thing as balance there was only balancing Mm. which was an active process in which of course if you're balancing on something you go all the way one way and then you nearly fall off and then you tip yourself over the other way and then there's never a static moment in which everything is in balance there is just this active lurching balancing and that for me has been so helpful because at the times where I'm like feeling like I'm doing a lot or I'm not doing enough or I'm struggling with this I'm struggling with that it's like it's just balancing like that's okay Mm. okay to have that too and and I that's really helped me hold that in mind again to be less kind of critical of the different of never having it all Mm. evened out yeah having found that perfect thing where I've got enough community I'm doing stuff by myself or I've got enough time or I've like created this perfect structure in which I've got all this freedom but actually loads of security it's like no like it's just an ongoing wobbly process Mm. yeah yeah because I I think there are so many people now professing to have this found this you know Mm. balance that we will strive for and this structure and that doesn't might work for them but it doesn't necessarily work for everyone else. I think it might be nonsense though. Yeah, I think, I it, think, I think that as well. Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's the way of selling stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's just not how it's also just not how to go back to nature. It mm. is not how the the planet is. Mm-hmm. There is not a moment of stasis. Mm. It is it's constantly moving and it's not even predictable from year to year the seasons change everything there is an overarching balance if you don't screw it up Mm -hmm. but within that balance everything is constantly shifting from day to day and from year to year and there are periods of massive correction that are actually pretty awful Mm. and 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 I think and and periods of abundance and periods of you know and that's just how it is so anyone who says they found a way to make it static and zen the whole time mm. is belying the nature of existence mm. that's what I say <laughs> yeah. I mean it's like you think about you know the seeds that need fire in order to pop yeah in order to um 
is it germinate I think yeah pressure is needed that fiery those fiery moments are needed because you never know what's I mean your book came out of a didn't come out of a a pandemic it was already planned but you know it's something you wrote during a pandemic and under intense pressure because I think that was such a crazy time um yeah and you never know what it's gonna bring out right no the 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 more things you put into a chemical reaction the you know the, the the more unpredictable it is and I think uncertainty and unpredictability are not things that we are currently conditioned to think are normal and okay and be able to deal with when very 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 evidently they are absolutely everywhere at the moment and that cognitive dissonance Mm. is I think really challenging it's challenging for me and I think it's really challenging for a lot of people it's been very helpful to be living a practical existence in which unpredictability and not being able to control stuff is part of the everyday not easy Mm. but very useful Mm -hmm. like sometimes like we had our first goat kids last year and one of them died you know they were you know one of them died during the birth one of them was like they were the first we'd ever bred it was this huge process mm. kids were absolutely devastated I was absolutely devastated yeah. but that was just how it was um you know sometimes the things I put the most work into I've had like the wind blow over my entire um cold frame in which maybe 500 seedlings some of which have been germinating for six months like absolutely devastated mm. but also really useful and then the things that I've put no effort into and just yeah. uh, uh, things that just surprise you and uh, and that's a really useful lesson I think mm-hmm. and there's definitely something there about resilience and you know it's not all about withstanding all the hard things it's about all of it you know just yeah re- resilience can be used to convince people that things that are being done to them are acceptable mm. and I think that's used a lot like in the National Health Service you know midwives being given resilience training it's like that's it's not gonna it's not gonna really cut it actually <laughs> what you need to do is improve working conditions and pay but resilience is a as a cyclical yeah. seasonal process of everything can really go very very wrong and that will be awful for a period of time and then there will be something else and it can get better Mm. um like that to me is resilience Mm. rather than a sort of you know a way of making turning people into robots yeah (laughs) (laughs) i i should come with a warning that i i I just does sometimes get a bit too political even when we're talking about seeds i i run a community group and we're constantly yeah so it's not good um um, sometimes people are like we're really here to talk really here to talk about flowers and goats like I don't want to talk about political. It all comes back to you ever listen to Skunk and Nancy in the 90s? Everything's political. Yeah. Um uh, okay, so my last question is um what's your hope for the future? This could be personal or you know, kind of bigger. Although it's all big, but um my personal hope. Is something is I'm trying to keep fairly small it's sort of an intention I've got to 
discover a way that I can flow (laughs) through my life and the world um and and that's accepting all the stuff about balance and the different speeds and cycles and also the you know the things that get thrown at you and Mm. um to be okay in that um not in terms of being able to do stuff I'm I'm really good at that but being okay in that and I think given the broader state of the world at the moment I feel like perhaps that is a hope that is a broader one like us us learning how to flow through Mm -hmm. what is happening um I mean I could say that we solve all the problems immediately and um but being realistic Mm coming yeah fi- finding a way to to exist in this time where it's really hard mm-hmm. um feels like though that doesn't sound super positive but actually to me it feels very positive yeah yeah I agree I agree and it, and it and also it's it, it's something that could feel small but actually it's not because it's all about where we are now and I think it's very easy to come up with a fluffy hope for the future. <laughs> well, yeah. peace and yeah. <laughs> everything, all these things. But, um, yeah. Um, this is just, I've, I've really loved talking to you today. This has been so lovely and such a lovely, like, re-entry, like, for myself into the podcast and you said for you into the the more yes. outwards. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been great. Um, it's always lovely to remember that, uh, for me that I'm really interested in other people and the yeah. world and that talking makes my brain feel good <laughs> so thank you yeah I feel the same um so before we kind of say goodbye can you just sort of um let people know where to find you the projects you have um going on at the moment how they can get involved and contact Absolutely. you and that sort of thing so um my um my memoir that we've been talking about earthed it's out now in hardback and um from uh i think it's the 8th of march it will be out in paperback and it's in all good bookshops and online and you can also order it into your library um i um if you are a uh parent who is into writing or wants to be into writing then if you go to motherswhowrite.co.uk you can find out about um our community and I'm uh I think I'm just Rebecca.shiller on Instagram where I will occasionally post pictures of uh goat kids and flowers <laughs> and uh intersperse with the odd political uh diatribe <laughs> that all the things that make make me certainly (laughs) (laughs) yeah there are animals and flowers and people who care about (laughs) absolutely Um, all right yeah thank you so much and yeah thank you for your time and and for agreeing to come on and yeah I, I wish you all the luck with earth and everything that's coming uh coming up ahead and I I say luck I just yeah you don't need luck I hope it all goes well I'll take luck yeah I will take luck (laughs) thank you it's been wonderful